One of the subjects that we have considered several times in our studies of the Word of God through the years is the subject of eternal security, or as it is sometimes called, perseverance of the saints. We have seen that the clear teaching of Scripture is that if you have truly received Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then you are secure in Christ's salvation. Salvation can't be lost because it can't be earned. The flip side to the coin of security is the subject of assurance of salvation. We not only have security in salvation, but we can also have assurance of salvation. It is possible to know for certain that you are saved. It is possible to know with assurance that you belong to God. You don't have to wait until you die to find out if you will be allowed to spend eternity in the presence of God. Yet some people actually believe that. Some people believe that you can't know for sure that you are saved until you stand before God and then he'll render the verdict and then you will find out for sure. I cannot fathom going through life that way. Can you imagine the insecurity, the fear, the doubt that stems from that kind of thinking? Beloved, God never intended that kind of of mental and emotional and spiritual turmoil for his children. He knows that that kind of atmosphere is terrible for spiritual growth. He desires to see us grow strong and healthy and vibrant in our spiritual walk. Assurance and security are so critical for healthy spiritual development, just like a child develops best in an atmosphere of love and acceptance. So God, in His Word, tells us that we can have assurance of salvation. We can know with certainty that we are saved, that we belong to God, and that we will spend eternity with Him. It is not pride or presumption to have that kind of assurance. In fact, Scripture tells us that God wants us to have it. To see this, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, by way of introduction this morning. And we're going to spend quite a little time in the introduction on this topic because it is the subject of our text in 2 Peter, chapter 1. John chapter 5 is where we'll begin, and I hope this message will be helpful for those who have doubted your salvation. But if you never have doubted your salvation, then realize that inevitably you will work with someone or minister to someone who has struggled with doubts or is struggling with doubts. So get this down to be able to help others to whom you minister. John 5 I want you to notice the certainty of Jesus' statement in verse 24. John 5, 24. Most assuredly I say to you, or verily, verily, truly, truly. Uh, Of course, that is Jesus' way to emphasize the importance of what he's about to say. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. Now, if that isn't a verse of assurance, I don't know what is. 
God wants us to be assured. Notice the certainty of this verse. Jesus says, He who believes has eternal life and has passed from death into life. Jesus did not say, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me shall have, might have, may have eternal life. Jesus said that if you truly believe, you already have eternal life. You don't have to wait and see. You don't have to wait and hope when you stand before God. Furthermore, Jesus says that those who have believed have already passed from death into life. It's already happened. This is a verse of solid, rock-solid assurance. Now, before we develop this concept any further, I want us to consider some of the reasons why some people lack assurance of salvation. What are some of the possible reasons why people don't have assurance of salvation? One very definite possibility is because they aren't saved. They aren't Christians. You have very good reason to doubt your salvation if you aren't genuinely saved or if you don't truly belong to Christ. Back up to the first gospel, Matthew chapter 7, to see what Jesus had to say about this. Matthew chapter 7, as Jesus was winding down his immortal Sermon on the Mount, he said in verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Please notice what Jesus says here. Broad is the way to destruction, and many go that way. And narrow is the way to life, and few, F-E-W, few go that way. Today, there are many people who do not believe what Jesus says here. Some Christians today believe that anyone who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. Anyone who's ever made any kind of profession of faith is automatically a Christian. Notice what Jesus says later in this chapter, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many, here, there's the word again. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Those are some of the most fearful words in Scripture. Jesus says that on Judgment Day, many, many will be sent away from Him into eternity apart from Christ forever. Those words from our Lord are intended to strike fear in the heart of those who aren't truly saved, to get the attention of those who are not saved. And listen, if that's your situation... If that's your condition, then the solution is simply to repent of your sin and turn to Christ in faith. If you lack of assurance of salvation, it might be, it may be, because you've never been born of God. In that case, don't ignore those doubts. It could be the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And if you are working with someone, ministering to someone who is doubting his or her salvation, please do not try to talk that person out of those doubts. 
he or she might not be saved. You are not the Holy Spirit. You can't see that person's heart. Don't give that person a false sense of assurance or security. Allow the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to grant assurance. If that person is truly a Christian, take that person to Scripture, say, this is what God says, and allow the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to grant assurance. But let's say an individual is genuinely saved, genuinely belongs to Christ. What might cause a genuine believer to doubt his salvation or to question it? One reason a true believer might lack assurance of salvation is if his spiritual growth is taking place slower than it should or is not progressing properly. This is exactly what we saw last week in our text in 2 Peter 1. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. Since that is true, if someone is saved, if someone is truly a child of God, but does not grow like he or she ought to, then that individual may begin to doubt his salvation because not a lot of changes are taking place as they should be taking place. You see, it is when we observe spiritual growth and changes in our lives, that, then that gives us assurance that Christ is in our lives, working, changing us. The Apostle John recognized this. Turn over with me near the end of the New Testament to the little letter of 1 John chapter 2. Maybe just find the book of Revelation and go backwards a few small letters to 1 John chapter 2. Notice what John says here in 1 John 2 verse 3. He addresses or touches on the subject of assurance. He says this, verse 3, Now by this we know, this is what we're talking about this morning, assurance. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. John says we know we have a genuine relationship with Christ because we keep his commandments. Now understand, we, we don't gain salvation by keeping the commandments of Christ. But assurance comes when we see the Spirit of God prompting us and enabling us to keep the commandments of Christ. As we see those kinds of changes in our lives produced by the Spirit of God, that gives us assurance that we know Christ, that He is present, that He is working in our lives. Over in chapter 3, John makes another uh, couple of statements along these lines. He says in chapter 3, verse 14, We know that we have passed from death to life. That's our topic this morning, assurance. We know we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Because we love the people of God. Unbelievers don't naturally love the people of God. Oh, they may have a Christian friend here or there. But loving the family of God, loving the people of God, that's not something that is natural or normal for non-Christians. So John says, as we see our love for the people of God, the church of God, the family of God, that grants us assurance that a radical change has taken place in our hearts and we belong to God. And then he says down in verse 18, a similar statement, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. The point that John is making in this section of his letter is that when we 
see growth taking place in our lives in the area of love for the family of God, then that gives us assurance that we belong to God. So, someone who comes to genuine faith in Christ, but gets sidetracked from spiritual growth, is in a position or condition to begin doubting his or her salvation. He doesn't lose it, but he may doubt it, or she may doubt it. And if this is the case, the solution is simple. Start growing spiritually. Develop your relationship with the Lord. Develop your walk with the Lord. Take in His words. Obey them. And when you see the Lord changing your life and granting you growth, it will be a great assurance to you of His salvation. By the way, on a side note, closely related, someone who never changes, never grows, just proves that he or she is not genuinely saved. That's what John said back in chapter 2, verse 4. Look at his statement, 1 John 2, verse 4. He says, He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And then in chapter 3, John makes a similar statement. In chapter 3, verse 10, In this, or by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest, are obvious. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And that is why James could say that faith without works is dead. So what have we seen thus far? Some who doubt their salvation doubt it because they have not grown very much since they came to Christ. They've not grown like they should have been growing. Others doubt their salvation because they're, they don't have salvation. They're not genuinely saved. A third reason why someone might doubt his or her salvation is because of carnality. This is a little different from the last reason, which was spiritual immaturity or lack of growth. Spiritual immaturity is, is when a Christian doesn't grow as he or she should. Carnality is when a Christian is not dealing with sin in his or her life. The two, as you can tell, are very closely related, though there's a, a slight difference between them. It's sort of like two sides to a coin, and either one can cause someone to doubt his salvation. Carnality in the life of a believer undealt with sin in the life of a believer could definitely cause someone to doubt his salvation. It could take away this sense of assurance. Back up with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. After the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have Acts, Romans, then 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In the opening chapter of 1 Corinthians, we won't take the time to go there and look at it, but I just want to call to your attention that Paul makes it clear. In the first chapter, Paul makes it clear that he is writing to genuine believers. So when we read these words here in chapter 3, we need to keep in mind that Paul is not implying that these people are unsaved, that they're unbelievers. He's not questioning that. But notice why he rebukes them in chapter 3, verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal as to babes in Christ, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal or fleshly, some translations say. For, here's his proof or evidence for that, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal, fleshly, and behaving just like mere men? Some translations say, just like unsaved people. Paul says that these Corinthian Christians, 
had so much carnality in their lives that they were behaving just like they were unsaved people. Well, that certainly could cause you to doubt your salvation. That could definitely result in a lack of assurance. The solution in this kind of scenario is quite simple. Deal with the sin in your life. Whatever it is. In this case, it was car- their carnality was manifested by envy and strife and divisions, but it can manifest itself in any number of ways. Deal with the sin in your life. Don't ignore it. Get, get rid of it. Confess it. Forsake it. And you won't doubt your salvation. So what could cause a person to doubt his or her salvation? Well, number one, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you've never surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ. Secondly, another possible reason is because maybe you're not growing spiritually like you should. You're not progressing, so you're spiritually immature. A third possible reason is maybe it's because you're carnal. There's so much sin in your life that you're unwilling to deal with that you're, you're, you almost look like an unsaved person, and that could be causing you to doubt your salvation. But there's another possibility. To see this one, please turn over to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 12. One reason why you might doubt your salvation is because if you are a child of God, then you have, an, you have a wretched enemy named Satan. And Satan loves to attack God's children with fear, doubt, anxiety, and questions about their salvation. Notice chapter 12, verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast out to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying to heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the, ki- and the power of his Christ have come. For, here's the phrase, For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. Notice that title. In verse 10, Satan is called the accuser of our brethren. Satan accuses God's children before the throne of God, and he accuses God's children in their own minds and hearts and consciences. In fact, the very title devil means one who hurls things or throws things. It's the picture of throwing a spear at someone, hurling a sword at someone. That's what Satan does at God's people. He hurls doubts at us. He hurls fears. He hurls anxiety. He hurls questions because he knows he can debilitate and paralyze the child of God with those tactics. The child of God who is assured of Christ's salvation and secure in Christ's salvation has tremendous potential to damage Satan's schemes and workings. So Satan works to cause us to doubt our salvation because he doesn't want the child of God to be victorious. The Apostle John addressed this very issue in his first letter. We looked at it a moment ago. Go back there again, just to the left, a few small letters to 1 John 
chapter 5 this time. 1 John chapter 5, verse 9. John says, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. Now, what testimony is John talking about here? What testimony is he referring to that we should believe? Look at verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Now, you can't say it any more precisely than that. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Beloved, that's the basis for assurance of salvation right there. That's how we can know for sure that we're saved. That's how we can know for sure that we belong to Christ. If we have Christ in our lives, we have life. If you don't have Christ, you don't have life. And that is why it is not prideful to say, I know with certainty that I'm saved. I know for sure that when I die, I will go to heaven. That is not presumption. Sometimes you will be talking with someone and say, do you know with certainty where you're going to go when you die? And the, the answer sounds very humble. The answer that comes back is, well, no, I don't know for sure. That would be very prideful for me to say, I know for sure I'm going to heaven. That would be presumptuous. No, it's not. We don't have to wait until we die to find out if we're saved. God's testimony is this. He has given eternal life, and this life is in His Son. If we have the Son... We have life. If we don't have the Son of God, we don't have life. And God says these things, these things so we can know with certainty that we are His. He wants us to know that. He wants us to have assurance. In fact, John says that's why he wrote this letter, verse 13. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Here it is. So that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants us to know with assurance and certainty that we are His. He doesn't want fear, doubt, anxiety, and questions to grip us and control us and paralyze us and defeat us. God wants us to grow, to develop, to serve Him, to live for Him. And He knows that the best way to accomplish that is to provide for us a context of assurance and security. That is by far the best atmosphere for a strong and growing relationship, which is exactly what the Lord wants us to have with Him. Now, all of this is important background to our text in 2 Peter 1 because the theme of our text this morning is assurance of salvation. So let's turn once again to 2 Peter. It's just prior to this letter of 1 John, 2 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> And please follow along as I read verses 5 through 11, though we won't 
focus on verses 5 through 9 since we've already covered those over the last couple weeks. But to get the flow, the context, follow with me as I begin reading in verse 5. Peter says, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, now here's the conclusion, the application that Peter draws. Therefore, in light of all that I've said thus far, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As I have mentioned in the last couple messages in this series, the Apostle Peter wrote this letter as a warning for Christians. He warns about false teachers and the potential false teachers have to do two things. Number one, false teachers can influence unbelievers away from the truth and toward a Christless eternity. And number two, false teachers can influence believers away from the truth and toward a life of stagnant spiritual growth. Peter was concerned that neither happened. He didn't want either of those things to happen. And that's why he wrote this letter. Here in chapter 1, his primary focus is on believers and the importance of staying strong in the truth for the purpose of spiritual growth. That's what we see in the verses we just read. Peter tells us in verses 3 and 4 that the Lord has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That is, the Lord has given us everything we need to be able to live a fruitful, godly life. What has He given us? He has given us a transformation within called the new birth. He has given us the resident Holy Spirit to strengthen us and enable us and equip us. He has given us exceedingly great and precious promises in His Word. He has given us deliverance from the corruption that is in the world. So Peter reminds us that we have all we need to live a life of godliness. It is not acceptable to say, I I can't. I just can't live the Christian life. The only, only truth in that statement is if you are not a Christian. If you are not a Christian, you can't live the Christian life. But if you are a child of God, you can. Not because of your own strength, your own ability, but because God has given you what you need to be able to live the Christian life. As a result, Peter exhorts us to move forward in growth in our Christian lives. That's the focus of verses 5 through 7. 
Peter lists seven qualities or seven character traits that we need to develop in our lives. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. These qualities are to be in our lives, and Peter says they are to be in our lives in abundance. That is our responsibility to cultivate those aspects of the Christian life. In fact, Peter says we are to give all diligence or make every effort to grow in those ways. Coming off that exhortation in verses 5 through 7, Peter explains their importance in verses 8 and 9, which we looked at last Lord's Day. He says, For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren, useless, nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. After giving those incentives to spiritual growth in verses 8 and 9, Peter sums up his point in verses 10 and 11, which we want to look at in our remaining time. In verse 10, he expresses his desire for his readers to have assurance of salvation. And then in verse 11, he expresses his desire for his readers to have an abundant entrance into heaven. Let's see what he's talking about. Verse 10. He says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Peter's wording here is very interesting. Notice that he says, Make your calling and election sure, or certain, depending on your translation. We cannot, I, I, I think you understand this, I think any, any Christian understands this, that we can't make ourselves called, we can't make ourselves elect, because that's God's work, but we can do something to make sure that we have truly been called by God and are saved. And this is another one of those many passages in the Scripture, uh, which uh, passages which do not hesitate to put divine sovereignty and human responsibility right together side by side. Here it is. Peter is talking about calling and election. That's God's side. And our responsibility to make sure we're saved. That's our side. So we can't make ourselves called or elect because that's God's work. But we can do something to make sure that we have been truly called by God and are saved. And the way we can have that assurance, Peter tells us, is by growing in the way he has just described in verses 5 through 9. When we see spiritual growth in our lives, changes taking place by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, then that gives us assurance that Christ is in our lives. He's present. He's working. Look at how far he's brought you. We don't gain salvation by growing spiritually. Please hear that. We don't gain salvation by growing spiritually, but assurance comes when we see the Spirit of God prompting us and enabling us to grow in Christ by adding to our faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. As we see these kinds of changes in our lives produced by the Spirit of God, that gives us assurance that we know Christ and we belong to Him. That's what Peter means by this phrase, making your call and election sure. 
Our Heavenly Father not only wants us to grow spiritually because it's right. Please hear this. He wants us to grow in Christ because of the benefit to us in our hearts by way of assurance. Assurance gives us stability in life. Assurance gives us confidence in life. It enables us to stand strong. That's what Peter means by his last statement in this verse when he says, For if you do these things, you will never stumble. He's not saying that we will never sin again. But he is saying that we will never fall back into, stumble into a lack of assurance. If you grow in the way that Peter describes in verses 5 through 7, then you will not stumble into doubt, despair, fear, or questioning. As we saw earlier in the book of Revelation, Satan loves to paralyze Christians, debilitate Christians with those things. But beloved, please hear me when I say this. God's heart, God's heart is for us to overcome those things. He wants us to have assurance. Take a moment to think about what this says to us about the character of God. Just contemplate that. Meditate on that for a second. It's very easy for us, especially when things aren't going well in life, it's very easy for us to view God as mean or uncaring or capricious. But this truth alone shows us the genuine character of our God. He loves us as his people, and he wants us to have assurance. He doesn't want us to be paralyzed or defeated by doubt, despair, fear, questioning. He wants his children to be secure and assured of salvation. That's one of the things that makes this passage so so precious and so meaningful. It gives us a little window into the heart of God, the character of God. And then Peter adds one other thought in closing off this paragraph. He says in verse 11, For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now notice what Peter says here. Peter didn't only want his readers to make it into the everlasting kingdom. It wasn't sufficient in his mind that they make it in. He wanted their entrance to be abundant. That's what he says in this verse. He wanted their entrance to be richly provided. To what is he referring? What what is he talking about here? I believe that Peter is talking about the opposite scenario that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 3.15. We won't turn back to it. I'll just quote it and summarize it. As Paul discusses the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians 3, which is an evaluation of the believer's life for rewards, he says in 1 Corinthians 3.15 that some Christians are going to suffer loss of reward. They aren't going to receive all the reward they could have received because they didn't live live their lives with eternal values in focus. For some Christians, the judgment seat of Christ will be a day of wonderful rewards. But some Christians will not receive the full reward they could have received because they didn't order their priorities and live the kind of life they should have lived. 1 Corinthians 3.15 says this. I'll quote the verse. If anyone's work is burned... He's talking about the work, the total work of someone's life. 
If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. In other words, some Christians will be saved. I mean, all Christians will be saved. But some Christians will be saved, but the judgment of their works will not result in anything worthy of reward. They won't receive any rewards or crowns. Some Christians will suffer loss at the judgment seat of Christ because their lives didn't really count for eternity. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I want my life to count for eternity. I want it to matter. I want it to make a difference. I want to receive rewards and crowns, not for selfish reasons, but so I can have the joy of casting them at the feet of Jesus. But 1 Corinthians 3.15 indicates that some Christians will suffer loss of reward and will be saved yet so as through fire. That's a direct quote. Now, that is the opposite. How does that apply to what we're looking at here? That is the opposite of what Peter is describing here in verse 11. His desire was that his readers have an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom. Peter gives us these words for the purpose of encouragement. Beloved, don't take these words the wrong way and say in your heart, well, I probably won't have an abundant entrance. I probably will be one of those who barely makes it in. That is the opposite of the way we ought to take these words. Peter piles up the words to bring joy to the weary Christian's heart. That's his purpose. That's his goal. An abundant entrance into eternal heaven is the hope and reality for a Christian who lives a faithful, fruitful life here on earth. So be encouraged. Be challenged. Pursue spiritual growth in your walk with Christ. Pursue it because it's the right thing to do. Pursue it because spiritual growth results in assurance. And pursue it because a faithful, fruitful life here on earth will result in a, an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what Peter wanted for his readers. Because that's what the Lord wants for his people. He wants our entrance into the everlasting kingdom to be richly provided, an abundant entrance, because by His grace we have lived a faithful, fruitful life. So that's the point. I mean, that's the sum of what Peter is saying to us here in this section of his letter. Be faithful. Be fruitful. Pursue your walk with Christ. Live for Christ. Pursue it because it's the right thing to do. Pursue it because spiritual growth results in assurance. And pursue it because a faithful, fruitful life will result in an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't know what else Peter could have said to encourage us or to motivate us or to give us incentive to pursue our walk with Christ. Let's bow together. As we close out our time together, I want you to think back through what we have looked at this morning, beginning all the way back at the introduction when we talked about the issue of assurance. Why is it that people sometimes lack assurance? Well, one reason 
is possibly because you're, you're not a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, you, you won't have assurance. And in fact, assurance would be false assurance. So if that's your condition, then repent of your sin. Let go of what is, whatever is holding you back and turn to Christ by faith and receive him in simple childlike faith. Surrender your life to him so you can know him and have assurance. Or maybe you are a child of God and you lack assurance because of either the presence of sin in your life that you've refused to deal with or the lack of growth in your life. If it's one of those two things, then address those things. Deal with those things so you can have assurance. Or maybe you are seeking to grow in Christ You're dealing with sin, but you lack assurance because your enemy and my enemy and God's enemy, the accuser of the brethren, is accusing your conscience and your heart. If that's the case, your defense is Scripture. Memorize John 5, 24, the very first verse we looked at. And when Satan plagues you with doubts, quote the verse. Quote it to your own heart. Quote it over and over again. He who believes in me, he who hears my word and believes in me, and believes in the one who sent me, has eternal life and has already passed from death into life and will never come into judgment. So if you're a child of God, hear Peter's exhortation here in 2 Peter 1 to grow. Pursue your growth in Christ because it's right. Pursue growth in Christ because growth results in assurance. And pursue your growth in Christ so you can have an abundant entrance as a result of a faithful, fruitful life. Whatever you need to do in response to God's truth this morning, don't don't close your Bible and just pass it off and dismiss it and ignore it. Respond however the Spirit of God has prompted your heart to respond. And Father, we thank you for how specifically your Word speaks, how relevantly it speaks, even to us here in our day and age. May we have ears to hear it, hearts to obey it, wills to choose in response to it so that as we grow in Christ, we will have that confident assurance. And then in eternity, in the future, we will have an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In closing, we pray this morning for anyone who is here with us who doesn't even know Christ personally as Lord and Savior. May your Spirit make that very clear to them. And if they have a false assurance and they don't really belong to you, Father, may your Spirit make that clear so that no one leaves here today without assurance of salvation that is found only through faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.